Welcome to the Envision Forum podcast. I'm FERC Chairman Neil Chatterjee. My guest today is Ari Pesco, Director of the Electricity Law Initiative at the Harvard Law School Environmental and Energy Law Program. Ari has written extensively about electricity regulation on issues ranging from constitutional challenges to states' energy laws to federal regulation of distributed energy resources. Prior to the Environmental and Energy Law Program, Ari was an associate at a law firm in Washington, D.C., where he litigated before FERC about the Western energy crisis. He earned his JD from Harvard Law School and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with degrees in electrical engineering and business. Ari, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm excited to have you here today and to get your perspective uh, on the energy industry. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I want to begin by just uh, uh, for folks uh, listening in who may not be as familiar with the Electricity Law Initiative, uh, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about um, what your organization does, how you became involved with the initiative, uh, and uh, some of your priorities as the director? Sure. So let me um, start with what the organization is. Um, So we're based at Harvard Law School, and that basically means two things for us. One, Um, We're focused on legal and regulatory issues. Governing or regulating the electricity sector involves a range of technical and economic issues. Um, And I really try to stay in my lane and focus on uh, focus on the law. Um, The second thing being at a being based at a law school means that we're, um, you know, our mission is has to have an educational component. So we're a research organization um, and we try to do in-depth legal analysis on um, relevant regulatory issues, um, and the publications we put out, whether they're white papers or public comments or legal briefs, um, you know, I try as best as possible that there be some sort of educational component to those filings um, that somebody who's perhaps new to the industry um, could, you know, take something away uh, uh, from our work that would help inform, um, you know, how the industry is regulated and what the legal um, constraints are. Um, our, our sort of, you know, our priorities here, though, you know, our research has a perspective, um, as all research does. Um, you know, we want to see a clean energy transition, and we believe that the law uh, should not be an obstacle to clean energy deployment. And in fact, um, despite the fact that the electricity sector is governed by more than century-old laws at the state level and an 85-year-old law, um, at the federal level, um, that there are opportunities there to understand the, these laws in such a way as to facilitate, uh, you know, a, a transition to a cleaner energy system. What are uh, some of the, the biggest challenges that you see within the law as uh, we make that transition? Well, <laughs> you know, part of the challenge is that, you know, the whoever sort of wields the power of interpreting the law um, can, you know, understand ambiguities um, in certain ways. Um, The electricity industry is particularly interesting because it's dominated, still dominated uh, by these, you know, investor-owned utilities that for 100 years have been uh, dominating uh, the industry. Um, And like any corporation, these, these companies are trying to use their strategic advantages um, to the best they can against their competitors. 
if you go back and you know look 30, 40 years ago at this industry, these investor-owned utilities completely dominated the industry, all segments of the industry, including uh, power generation and, and transmission. And FERC took decisive action now about 25 years ago uh, to weaken the control of these organizations uh, over uh, power generation. And FERC has taken subsequent action since then. And what we've seen is the development of these competitive markets that I think are good for consumers and also good for uh, clean energy uh, deployment. But I think there's still a lot of work left to be done um, to untangle the influence uh, of these investor-owned utilities um, to bring about sort of more fundamental change, both in terms of uh, enabling innovation at the distribution level, uh, which sort of beyond FERC's control, but also bring in innovative transmission projects that'll that'll facilitate um, more clean energy development. Um, I do think, though, at the distribution level, which is something that states regulate, there's this um, ongoing issue of who is going to regulate distributed energy resources, small-scale resources like rooftop solar, um, demand response, um, that can play important roles in the energy transition. And there's been some uh, ongoing and sort of dormant proceedings at FERC uh, or recently concluded proceedings about um, who is going to have authority? Is it going to be a federally regulated matter or a state regulated matter or some sort of shared regulatory space over these distributed energy resources? And I think that's going to be uh, an ongoing, really interesting legal debate. Yeah, so pivoting to that a little bit, um, I've been pretty vocal, um, like you, in feeling that uh, we need to remove barriers uh, to entry for uh, new technologies uh, uh, and ensure that they're able to access markets and be compensated for all their attributes. Um, I uh, have not been shy about uh, uh, saying that uh, I'm particularly proud of the work we did on uh, FERC Order 841 on storage, and uh, I think our efforts uh, to some of the jurisdictional questions that you uh, briefly touched on uh, were vindicated uh, by the D.C. Circuit. Don't want to get ahead of my colleagues, um, but um, I think we've done a great bit of work uh, on uh, rulemaking uh, pertaining to breaking down those same barriers to entry for aggregated distributed energy resources. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, the significance of some of these, uh, uh, the, the FERC action on 841 that we took? And again, without getting ahead, too far ahead, what the prospects uh, could be for, uh, for a rulemaking on uh, DERs? So I think the storage order is a good example of FERC really working in its sort of core area of expertise and competency, where um, it identified a barrier to new technology in sort of the legal terms, you know, rules unduly discriminated uh, against storage technologies resulting in unjust and unreasonable rates. And it was an incumbent upon FERC to break down those barriers to enable the fair participation um, of storage resources in the market. So I think that was, uh, uh, you know, as I said, sort of the core of what FERC should be doing uh, to facilitate uh, a clean energy transition. You mentioned, you know, the legal issue at stake was, okay, so what about um, storage resources that are technically capable of providing service into the interstate market, but are connected at the state regulated distribution level? Should there be different rules uh, for that. And, and I think the commission rightly said no, that who gets to participate in the interstate market is a matter solely uh, for FERC's judgment and regulation. And the court you know, vindicated um, that approach. So I think this, that sort of same legal argument would also hold for um, 
you know, what, what, what the commission proposed back in 2016, which was enabling the participation of an aggregation of small scale distributed energy resources into the market. Um, you know, I'm not sure sort of what the, you know, there may very well be sort of technical barriers to this. The business models might not be there yet. Again, these are sort of matters that I try um, to let other people address, and I focus on the core legal issues, but I don't see any legal barrier that prevents FERC from requiring the market operators, these RTOs and ISOs, um, from you know enabling participation of these small-scale um, resources. And it could be a real game-changer um, for the industry once these aggregated resources are allowed to participate in the market. But I do also think it raises an additional legal question that FERC has not squarely addressed in a serious way, which is, does FERC have jurisdiction over the sort of initial sale, let's say, from an individual resource to the aggregator who in turn is going to sell it into the interstate uh, market? Um, So I think that that's a really... Um, interesting legal question. It was just teed up by a, a front group that filed a petition that FERC recently rejected about a particular compensation method for these distributed energy resources called net metering that states had regulated and the front group uh, wanted FERC to regulate. And I think you rightly, uh, commission rightly dismissed the petition on, on procedural grounds, but it did kind of trigger this big question that's still floating out there as to who has authority to regulate that initial sale um, from these small scale resources um, to, to, to a buyer. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, parties did not seek rehearing, so I can safely uh, yep. discuss that matter <laughs> with you. Um, just kind of uh, wanted to get your perspective on this because as we were considering that particular uh, petition, um, uh, you know, I was uh, uh, in a box to some degree because I was very supportive of the approach that we took in 841 uh, on the jurisdictional question there, and there were some legal intersections. Uh, between uh, the action we took in 841 and that petition. Can you kind of give me your mm-hmm. perspective on you, how you viewed uh, the differences between that petition and 841 and potentially some of the jurisdictional questions uh, that could arise should we uh, move forward with the DER rule? Yeah, I mean, the issue in 841 was somewhat different because there, there was a direct sale from the storage device Um, let's say a battery located in the basement of some building. Um, And there was a direct sale from that resource um, to the interstate market operator. And I think clearly the sale directly to an RTO, that market operator, that's, you know, a sort of creature of FERC's creation. Clearly every, you know, everything that it does is under um, FERC's jurisdiction. Um, And that, to me, that that energy sale was clearly a sale, a wholesale sale in interstate commerce, which are sort of the magic jurisdictional words under the Federal Power Act that gives uh, FERC authority. Um, as I said, you know, what's what's different about what's different about net metering um, is that the sale is not clearly a wholesale sale in interstate commerce. It's something that happens um, between a utility consumer and their local utility. Um, and those that relationship between a local utility and their consumer have been regulated uh, uh, by by states. Um, and so I think there were a number of reasons why a that 
you could just sort of consider that energy transfer um, as something that would just be a state matter, sort of a retail matter under state jurisdiction. And even apart from that, there are reasons to consider why that um, if you want to consider that energy transfer a wholesale sale, why you would not necessarily need to consider it in interstate commerce um, under the Federal Power Act. So as, when it comes to this DER aggregation rule, you know, I think the sale from the aggregator to the market is akin to the sale from the storage device in 841 because it's selling directly to the RTO. That aggregator is going to sell to the RTO and that's going to be a FERC jurisdictional sale. But, but, but I think this sort of piece that I don't think the commission has squarely addressed is what about that initial sale from the resource to the aggregator and can the state set the terms and conditions for, uh, for those sales? Well, these are all richly complicated issues, and uh, I appreciate that uh, folks within the building here at 888 and uh, as well uh, as uh, at uh, institutes like your own uh, have the expertise to help us navigate these complex challenges. Speaking of complicated challenges, uh, you and I have engaged in the past uh, on transmission uh, and transmission being critical uh, to uh, the energy transition um, and our move towards decarbonization. Um, I, for one, uh, am a big believer in what Order 1000 intended to achieve um, and am frustrated that we're not yielding the results uh, of, uh, of competition. Um, I have come to the recognition that with everything that we have on our plates, trying to reopen Order 1000 right now would be biting off more than we can chew. But I am interested in targeted solutions to try and you know move us in the right direction, um, what uh, what advice can you give my colleagues and I um, if, if if you could direct us on what to focus on to try and yield these benefits from transmission and ensure that that um, you know flexible uh, uh, consumer benefit transmission is there uh, for the greater of the future. Yeah, so you know I think you know addressing the market power and dominance of investor-owned utilities is just at the core of what FERC does. Um, so, I, so I do think, you know, bringing competition to transmission development, I think is completely consistent with FERC's um, core mission. Um, so, you know, I, I, I also, um, you know, applaud FERC for what it did, you know, about 10 years ago in Order 1000, where it basically said, um, you know, it recognized that investor-owned utilities that have these state-granted service territories, that privilege that they get from the states does not entitle them to a monopoly or sort of perpetual ownership of the interstate electric delivery system. But even though that that's how things sort of had worked out um, in practice, um, there's no legal entitlement um, to this sort of perpetual ownership of what's really, you know, in a lot of sense, sort of a public good, something that's fundamentally necessary um, for a modern way of life, for decarbonization, for so many things. Um, and, you know, one thing that you see consistent through, you know, FERC's orders where it's, um, you know, work to, to counteract uh, this sort of transmission dominance of investor-owned utilities is for its repeated recognition that these companies have incentives and abilities to uh, manipulate the system, control the system in ways that 
um, benefits themselves to the detriment of consumers. And that's not to say that these are particularly um, troublesome or evil corporations. As I said, sort of all, all private companies use their structural advantages um, as best they can to help themselves. But it's just that some of the structural advantages that these transmission owners have is is tied directly to state regulation. And I think it's incumbent on FERC um, to try to neutralize um, those benefits. So it, I, I sort of agree with you. It's a very tough problem to crack in part because what we've seen over the past 10 years is transmission owners retreating away from what should have been competitive regional development processes into uh, the sort of uncompetitive world of, of local transmission development, which in practice has been subject to very little oversight. And so I think really FERC can flex its muscle um, to take a harder look at some of these local development processes and try to, you know, prod utilities to um, move back into these regional competitive spaces. I don't think the answer is sort of just removing competition and letting IOUs do what they want, but I don't have a quick answer for you. That was all just sort of a way of background, I think. Well, I think you and I both saw the difficulties of this firsthand. We were, I guess it's probably been, you know, a year and a half ago at a meeting at the Duke Nicholas Institute on this very subject. And mm-hmm. at the onset of the meeting, everyone was in agreement that uh, uh, this is something we needed to tackle. Then the minute we actually started to engage on specifics, and you had a wide array of stakeholders around the table, just getting into regional planning, the whole thing fell apart, and you saw where the disagreements uh, arose, and uh, uh, it just shows you the, the, the difficulty and the challenge uh, in, uh, in, in undertaking this. But uh, I, I do agree yeah. that it's something that we need to continue to focus on. And I think, you know, what FERC did right in transmission operations with its open access mandate and, and, and the steps that it took along with that was trying to encourage utilities to cede control to independent entities. And I think that's yielded a lot of benefits. And I think that sort of approach could be um, copied in, in transmission development and working on refining what this independence principle means and how can you encourage entities to put more of their transmission planning under independent uh, control, I think would be a one possible approach. I've been working on a, uh, a long research article that I'm currently titled, Is the Utility Transmission Syndicate Forever? Um, because as I said, I, I don't think these companies are entitled to perpetual ownership um, of, our, of our nation's high voltage electric delivery systems. And so we do need, I think it's incumbent on FERC particularly if Congress is unwilling to do anything about this, um, to continue to move the industry forward in a way that brings more competition to the space. Having uh, had the great privilege of serving uh, both as a staffer in Congress and now at the commission, uh, I have, for the totality of my career, watched as uh, they punt the ball back and forth to each other, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully that we can uh, uh, get a breakthrough here in the near well, term. Well, I'm curious why you think that, you know, sort of what your experience was in Congress that sort of led them to punt it back to the commission. Is it just sort of that there's no political constituency for reform here? Well, it's just when you start getting into siting and you start getting into cost allocation, um, you know, things start to break down. Um, I don't necessarily think on political lines, more so on uh, on regional geographic lines. And it was just tough to ever get the consensus. 
And so uh, I would watch as Congress would uh, uh, attempt legislation in the space and then, you know, punt it over to the commission. Um, I think uh, I recall back maybe circa 2007, 2008, uh, Senator Reid of Nevada, when he was the majority leader, uh, proposed legislation uh, that uh, didn't gain much traction in the Senate. But if you look at the bones of that Reed bill ultimately kind of uh, emerged in Order 1000. Uh, that's an example of how Congress tried, couldn't get there, and the commission was able to, uh, to step mm-hmm. in and, and move forward with Order 1000. Yeah, there certainly are several examples of that over the years of of FERC picking up the pieces from uh, congressional proposals. Interesting to me, though, that, you know, Congress did manage to do something in 2005, you know, the first major energy bill after, you know, open access and and ISOs and RTOs. and, And Congress managed to give FERC some backstop authority that proved to be ineffective. But, you know, sort of revisit if Congress could just revisit that and make that sort of backstop authority more effective, I think it could go a long way. And you are starting to see, you know, some bipartisan consensus and interest uh, emerge on that. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, perhaps after the election, whether uh, whether there's a focus in this area. Uh, pivoting a little bit, I mentioned in the intro that uh, early on in your career, um, you uh, practiced before the commission looking at the Western energy crisis and Western issues. Um, obviously, we're seeing, seeing some pretty significant uh, developments in California uh, with rolling blackouts. Um, I think my former colleague, uh, Commissioner LaFleur, uh, had a great quote in the press today that uh, people are being way too quick to diagnose what happened, and uh, they're kind of looking at it like a Rorschach test, and they're seeing Mm -hmm. out of the scenario what they want to see. So using that uh, uh, colorful example, if you're looking at this as a Rorschach test, what are you seeing uh, in California today based on your expertise? Well, I'm I'm trying to uh, avoid participating in the sort of Rorschach test game. Um, You know, I think when I think back on sort of my work on the California energy crisis from 2000 and, and 2001, um, which I think is still actually being litigated, certain small aspects of it uh, before the commission 20, you know, about 20 years later, um, you know, if various, there were various groups that had interests in promoting certain versions of the event. So my, my experience is colored from representing sellers in the market that were um, accused of various forms of market manipulation, and it, the state had an interest in making it all about market manipulation. So the sellers were the bad actors, and they could go back and recover some of the high costs um, from sellers. But I think FERC then found, you look back at some of the you know orders that the commission staff that had ultimately developed, that it was actually a complex range of factors from low hydro, um, you know, market manipulation as well. Um, to not enough supply in the market due to um, other factors, um, to even the utilities' uh, own performance as well as market design problems as well. So I suspect what you know. I hope that the commission will will look at this and and try to provide um, you know as an objective perspective as they can on on what happened here and how to avoid something like this um, in the future. But I you know I don't think that we can just pin it on one factor. Um, I suspect it, it's it's going to be, as these things usually are, more complicated than that. Fast forwarding to the future a little bit. Um, it is not public as of uh, our recording this right now, but by the time this podcast airs, 
uh, it will be public that uh, you will be uh, participating as a panelist on our September 30th technical conference uh, examining carbon pricing in first jurisdictional markets. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but can you give us a little bit of a, a preview of what you plan to uh, lay out? Well, I mean, I think FERC clearly has legal authority to approve a carbon price. And I think, you know, the the um, pre-hearing notice, pre-conference notice that I think the commission put out um, may specifically reference a carbon price imposed by a state, right? So it's not PJM coming or some other market operator coming up with a price on its own. It's not FERC conjuring up the price. It's actually the state setting the price and can um, FERC... Um, you know, approve uh, PJM or somebody else, you know, integrating that price in the market. I really don't think there's any question that sort of a cost of doing business that market participants have to pay, such as a state carbon price, um, can be included in the market. And I also think it follows that the market operator can try to, you know, sort of implement it in an economically efficient way, consistent with um, market principles. So that's that's sort of the gist of what I was saying. I guess you could take it even farther and say, you know, if, if you um, sort of build off what the commission did in its MOPR orders and in PJM, um, which I don't agree with, but if you if you uh, sort of take it as given that FERC can neutralize uh, in its market regulation advantages provided to certain resources by state law, then surely uh, FERC can approve things like a border adjustment, um, you know, to sort of account for the difference between um, states in a multi-state market that have the carbon price and states that don't have the carbon price. Because the effect of one state having a carbon price that resources outside of that state then have an advantage um, in the market. And so to neutralize that advantage provided by state law, clearly FERC um, should be able to, uh, you know, approve some sort of efficient implementation of that. So to tug on that thread a little bit, um, and uh, you brought up the intersection with the MOPR, uh, the governor of Illinois recently came out and uh, voiced his opposition to uh, Illinois exercising the FRR option because of the potential implications and costs to consumers. And I don't want to put words in the governor's mouth, but seemed to suggest that there could be a dovetailing of the MOPR and a state administered carbon price. Uh, do you see potential for such a dovetailing? Um, well, certainly in a state like Illinois that has the zero emission credits, um, you know, I don't remember the exact formula for how the states compute the value of those, but it's tied. Um, it, it sort of moves in the same, in the opposite direction of market prices. And so if a carbon price can make the market price higher, that potentially could make the ZEC price lower, which could improve uh, the efficiency of the market, as I understand it. Um, so it could be that the state can sort of have it both ways, can keep its ZEC policy, also have a carbon price that might make um, everything more efficient for its policy. I mean, I think the commission really put the states in a tough bind here with its MOPR orders where states enacted policies that they were legally allowed to enact. And then the commission came in and kind of pulled the rug out from under them um, by making it more expensive for them to continue to enforce their existing policies. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, hopefully we can find states and FERC can come to some sort of 
um, resolution. I don't know if carbon price is the sort of sustainable solution on, to this problem or not, um, but I think it's certainly a legal option that FERC could pursue. Well, I don't want to steal uh, your thunder from uh, the tech conference and uh, look forward to uh, to following <laughs> up with you on this uh, next month. Um, I don't think we could possibly have a conversation about uh, energy policy uh, in August of uh, 2020 without reflecting on uh, the pandemic uh, and the implications of uh, COVID-19 on the energy sector. Um, was just curious. I've been asking uh, all the folks who have been gracious enough to come on this podcast to kind of give me their perspective on the short and long-term impacts of the pandemic, what might be some challenges, what might be some opportunities. Uh, this is something that, again, every component of the uh, uh, energy sector, uh, from different fuel sources to consumers uh, to, to governments, are all struggling with. Just wanted to get your perspective on what the world may look like six months from now, 12 months from now, five years from now. Yeah, that's a, it's a sort of a profound issue um, because our energy system is so sort of fundamental, um, you know, to, to our society that sort of the, the larger question that you're getting at is what is our society going to look like in six months, 12 months, five years? Um, what, what's, what's this pandemic actually going to be in the long, in the long term beyond the chaos and, and, and devastation that it's already caused? Um, you know, I, I, tend to take a long-term perspective on these issues. Um, and so my hope is that this is just a little blip. Um, and I don't mean to trivialize the scale and scope of the blip, um, but, but I hope we're able to move on from this. Um, and in terms of the energy system, I would say for one, it shows just critically, how critically important electricity is, and we, we typically, most people just sort of take it for granted that it works 99 point whatever percent of the time. Um, and, you know, this just sort of getting through this pandemic would be just that much harder uh, without that there. Um, but in terms of sort of the markets and everything else, you know, I think, you know, for one, it seems to be accelerating this trend of of coal retirements, coal bankruptcies, because these plants, I think in a lot of cases, were just barely hanging on uh, to begin with, and are now, you know, going offline at, at least as fast a pace as they were before. Um, you know, hopefully it doesn't sort of slow the investment that I think, um, you know, really needs to happen um, to replace these sort of aging assets and to, um, you know, hasten this clean energy transition that I think is a societal um, imperative. But But beyond that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have uh, I have any predictions, but I do sort of have an appreciation for the work that's been done, particularly um, in areas that have been hardest hit to, to keep the energy systems running. Well, I appreciate your uh, perspective on uh, the impacts of the pandemic on the energy world. Uh, you and I uh, share an affinity uh, for the sports world as well. Uh, curious as to what your uh, what your take is uh, on the future prospects for for sports. The uh, the NBA bubble seems to be working. NHL well, seems to be pulling it off. Are we going to have a World Series? Are we going to have a football season? What What do you think? Well, I've um, I self identify as a Knicks fan. Um, so it's been a rough 20 years on the NBA. Yeah. Front. And that NBA draft lottery didn't quite work out 
for you. Well, yeah, nothing really seems to work out for them. <laughs> so um, I, I don't really understand. You know, I haven't I don't think I've been to Madison Square Garden for a Knicks game since the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. And I, I don't understand why there aren't chants from 20,000 fans every single game just to sell the team. Because um, I think that's just the only solution there. Um, so, you know, the and, you know, my, my other teams are pretty miserable as well. I'm a Mets fan uh, and I'm a New York Giants fan in football. So, um, you know, we've, we've had our moments, but I don't think uh, 2020 is going to be uh, our year. Very controversial question. Is Eli Manning a Hall of Famer? Um, well, sure. Why not? You know, um, I, I think he basically didn't miss a game his entire career. He won two Super Bowls. Uh, he got cheated out of a third Super Bowl when Plaxico Burris shot himself in the leg when they were 10 and one and dominating the league that season. Um, so yeah, why well, the guy had an extraordinary career. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's not a top 10 quarterback of all time, probably, but, uh, sure. Let's, let's put his name in the hall of fame. Now, how does your giant fandom play, uh, on campus, uh, at Harvard in the heart of Patriots? <laughs> well, Harvard's an oasis unto itself. Uh, so <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not too controversial, uh, uh, on campus. Um, you know, Patriots fans are sort of an insufferable bunch. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll see what happens this year, I guess, with Cam Newton. But at some point, uh, the dynasty is going to end and, and the Patriots fans suddenly will, you know, um, you know, some some Patriots fans, I think, will just sort of disappear, um, sort of forget <laughs> about forget about the Patriots. They probably weren't there back, you know, pre Belichick. And I think they won't be there post Belichick either. So, um you know, I think uh, that's fine. They'll go back to sort of being a, a suffering bunch like, like the other fans are. What, uh, what is the situation uh, on campus this fall? Have uh, you guys gotten any indication on whether students will be returning and uh, what the plan is? So at the law school, um, we'll be remote teaching um, in the fall. Um, my cl- I have a reading group, which is sort of uh, we meet uh, six times, two hours, uh, each time uh, to talk about, uh, you know, whatever the readings are for that week. And so my reading group is about the sort of history of the electricity sector. We typically take one fuel source um, uh, per session. We start with hydro and the controversies about government ownership and uh, what sort of the role of government should be in the electricity sector. Anyway, so I'll be doing that uh, remotely this spring. I don't believe has been decided yet. Um, I teach state energy law in the spring. Um, so hopefully we'll be back by then, but you know, obviously I'm, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainties in the world. So that's, that's sort of the least of them. Are you seeing uh, an uptick in interest in electricity policy amongst uh, young people, amongst students, um, you know, as these issues kind of come to the forefront um, in society, something that folks probably, uh, young people in particular, took for granted that uh, you hit the switch, the lights come on, uh, not recognizing all of the complex legal and regulatory things that go into it. Um, Are are you seeing greater engagement uh, amongst the next generation of legal scholars? Um, I am seeing more students um, interested in FERC, and we've had a number of students. We had one just this past semester that interned at Commissioner Glick's office. Um, so I've had other students that have just entered in, you know, the general counsel's office. 
Um, so I think, you know, I think there is, and there's definitely sort of more um, interest from the institution. I mean, the fact that my position even exists um, is, is a testament to the, um, you know, growth of, of this space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I was in law school, um, you know, there was no program like this. There were no uh, courses about this. And so I kind of had to come up on my own how I was going to learn about this through independent study projects and clinicals and um, sort of out of classroom sort of activities, engaging with stuff at MIT. Um, so, so there's a few more organized opportunities as well. We have a great group in our program of, of research assistants um, who aren't just, you know, I'm part of a larger program uh, that focuses on sort of the whole range of environmental regulatory um, issues. And we've had a lot of interest uh, from students in, in getting engaged on, on those issues. Well, Ari, thank you again uh, for taking the time to uh, to join us uh, on the podcast today. We uh, covered a wide range of issues, and I really appreciate uh, your uh, expertise and insights. Very much looking forward to uh, uh, following up with you on September 30th at our technical conference. Uh, I must confess, I had initially hoped to have hosted that in person here at the commission, uh, but I think uh, if you saw our pandemic tech conference, we did a pretty good job executing it virtually and so uh, uh, I will see you uh, via WebEx or whatever technology platform we have and uh, thank you for participating today thank you for participating on September 30th and uh, look forward to continuing the discussion all right thanks for having me on I look forward to the tech conference as well The Envision podcast is sponsored by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and its chairman, Neil Chatterjee. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of FERC or any individual FERC commissioner.